Well, good afternoon, church. Thank you for joining with us uh, once again to come now to open the Word of God, specifically to the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. And uh, if you have been with us, you know that we are now in the second missionary journey or second missionary tour of the Apostle Paul and his team. And if you were with us last week, you know that they had just received a vision from God to head over to the uh, continent of Europe, or Macedonia, as it is called here in Acts chapter 16. And in today's passage, what we're going to be doing is Luke's going to start the narrative on Paul and his team's journey in the city of Philippi. Philippi is uh, uh, a, a city in which Paul would write a letter later to, to the letter to the Philippians, and it is within this city that Luke presents to us three narrative accounts of the evangelistic endeavors of the Apostle Paul along with his ministry team. It's Paul, we also have Timothy, Silas, and Luke, the author, is with them as they are proclaiming the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they come into going to what we know of as the first uh, proclaimed convert on the whole continent of Europe. These are remarkable times here in the plan of God building up His kingdom for the name of Christ, where the gospel is now gone from uh, being a sect which was found in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and, and some other regions of Asia and Asia Minor to now transferring beyond the Aegean Sea and into the continent of Europe. The gospel surely is going to the ends of the earth. And the first uh, Christian convert we're going to learn about today is a woman by the name of Lydia. She's a seller of purple goods, and it's within her account today and her conversion uh, here that the Apostle Paul and God's Word teaches us a number of wonderful truths as it pertains to our own uh, opportunities to evangelize the lost, to reach the lost. We'll learn a great deal today here in Acts chapter 16, verse 11 to 15 on the responsibilities that we have towards evangelism. Again, Acts chapter 16, verse 11 to 15, and it reads as follows. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We, we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word as it is before us now as the instrument in which you are using before us today to make us more faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that as we have gone through Acts, there is this constant theme of evangelism that your church is doing, uh, whatever city they find themselves to be in. And so, Lord, as we come now today, I pray that you would embolden us through your Spirit to be faithful witnesses of the message of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, teaching all people of the, the wonderful salvation that Jesus accomplished at Calvary, teaching them of the, the salvation that is to be had in His name and His name alone and the eternal life that will come on that final day when you draw us to Yourself. Lord, may we be faithful presenters of the gospel message and may we learn a great deal today of our responsibility to opening the hearts and the minds of the individuals with the gospel truth so that You will do Your work in saving those whom You have called. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, evangelism can be overwhelming, and this is in all facets of it. 
in the preparation to evangelize, in the act of evangelism, and then even in the follow-up of evangelism as you recall what you've said to this individual. Every single facet of evangelism is quite overwhelming, and experience teaches us this. If you've ever gone to prepare for evangelism, you know that it's not just something you walk into without thinking through what you're going to be doing. As you're preparing for evangelism, you're thinking about, okay, well, what am I going to say to this individual? How do I introduce the gospel to them? Are they going to reject me? Will they understand what I'm saying to them? Uh, Should I leave this to someone else? Or maybe how long should I wait for them to respond? All of these thoughts that fill our mind as it pertains to evangelism as we prepare to proclaim the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So also in the moment of evangelism, as you begin to share with them, you're thinking in your mind as the words are coming out of your mouth, are, are they understanding what I'm saying to them? Are they even listening to me? Should someone else be saying these things? Does God really have for me to be sharing the gospel with this individual now? Or have I uh, sparked up the conversation of evangelism too soon? Often there's these overwhelming thoughts, anxious thoughts in our minds as we are even doing the work of evangelism, presently sharing the gospel with the individual. And then finally, afterwards, you're wondering, well, did I say the right thing? Is this individual ever going to respond to the gospel? Did I prevent this person from responding to the gospel message because my words were not clear enough to them? Did I say something that offended them and so, wow, this person's eternal state is now on my lot. This person has rejected the gospel because of something that I have said. All of these anxious thoughts that fill our minds with evangelism often uh, really showcasing that evangelism can be quite overwhelming. And anyone who has evangelized knows this to be true from your own experience. And if you say, well, I've never felt that before, well, then I don't know what to tell you. You are a, a one of a kind because everyone that I've ever spoken to about evangelism and anytime I myself have ever evangelized, I know the overwhelming thoughts that can be had for an individual as they prepare, as they are doing it, and then also afterwards. It's always overwhelming, and thus begins that vicious cycle that all of us are faced with, which inevitably will prevent us from being a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ as we are seeking to share the gospel message about Him. This is this vicious cycle of evangelism because of its overwhelmingness to our own minds that prevents our witness from going forward. Now think about this with me for a moment. I want to uh, think about how we conversate with people on a day-to-day basis. Because really what evangelism is, is us conversating with someone about the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Someone who says, well, evangelism is overwhelming, I would have you consider this idea. Is it overwhelming for you to talk about sports? Is it overwhelming for you to talk about politics? Is it overwhelming for you to talk about the stock market? Or is it overwhelming for you to talk about the hobbies in which you are very passionate about? I can imagine that many of us are not overwhelmed when we are talking about these things that we are quite often finding ourselves passionate about. It's easy to talk about a favorite football team. I talk with you about the Packers day in and day out, no problem whatsoever. That's my football team. I can talk to you about my favorite football player, and I'm sure you can talk to me about things that you yourself are passionate about, and there's no overwhelming uh, sensation that you feel within your body or with your mind because you're passionate about these things. You're, you're, You're passionate about the hobby that you have, or you're passionate about your work, or you're passionate about the politics in which you hold to. Every single one of us, if we have a passion about something, we are often not finding ourselves overwhelmed in talking about it. And you say, well, why is this the case? Why am I not overwhelmed when I'm talking about things that I am passionate about? Well, it is because we have immersed ourselves in these things to a 
point where our passion abounds in them so much so that we don't care who hears what we're saying. We just want to speak about these things that we have so dear to our hearts. We love to talk about these things, and we do not care if anyone else likes to talk, to them, talk about them or not. And the old adage goes like this, what grips the heart wags the tongue. What grips the heart wags the tongue, meaning it, is, it, it has gone into our heart in such a way that our mouth cannot but speak about these wonderful truths that we are wanting to talk about, whether in sports or hobbies or politics or whatever these things are. Our hearts have been so gripped by these things that it begins to wag the tongue in such a way that we cannot help but speak about them. Now, negatively thinking about this statement, we could say that if it has not gripped the heart, in turn, we will not speak about it. If something has not gripped our heart, well, we're going to be timid about it. We're not going to want to share with someone about it because we care about what this other individual thinks. Now, you say, well, this is not the Word of God, this statement, what grips the heart wags the tongue, and you're true. You're true in saying that. This is not the Word of God, and so even this statement falls short to a certain extent. But consider what the Lord said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, this is the same idea. This adage has the same idea that the Lord had as He was proclaiming to these Pharisees, saying, for out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Really, for what, for what grips your heart wags your tongue. And for them, it was all the works of unrighteousness. You see, Christ's words are eternal. Christ's words are true. And what Christ's word has said to us here in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, is that if something has gripped our heart, we will be able to not help but speak about that thing which has gripped our heart. And so you say to me then, well, why is it that I become overwhelmed in evangelism and in turn fail to share the message of God's gospel? Well, could it be that the message of the gospel has not yet gripped our heart in such a way that it just pours forth out of our mouth in speech so that everyone could hear about the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ? You see, only when the truths of the gospel grip our hearts will we in turn wag our tongues with the message of eternal life. And I'm not talking about some superficial emotionalism which we might have towards the gospel truth, which indeed the gospel does produce emotions in us, such as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. We have emotions as it comes towards the gospel. But you see, it is only when the truths of the gospel reach our heart that we will in turn wag our tongues with its message. You see, when we understand the depths that the gospel brought us out of and the heights that the gospel brought us into, we will find ourselves unable to speak of anything else but the glory of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel has saved us from sin and from the wrath that is to come. It has brought us forgiveness and reconciliation with our Creator. Death no longer has victory over us, for we now have resurrected life. Sin no longer has power over us because we have been born again to newness of life through the power of the Spirit of God. We are no longer orphans, having been adopted into the family of God now, no longer wandering around as slaves to sin, but rather slaves to righteousness by the power of the Spirit of God. You see, it is within the gospel that we have justification through Christ's blood, sanctification by His power, and glorification in His promise. The gospel has brought us such wonderful, wonderful truths. And the fact that I'm seeking to make clear to us today then is this. When these truths grip our hearts, when we dwell upon these truths in our biblical time of reading God's Word or in our prayer time or in our just meditating upon these truths, we will not be able to help ourselves but just go out and proclaim of the love that God has shown to us in His Son. 
our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in the gospel, we learn of the mercy of God, his unmerited kindness towards us, his forgiveness, his power, his justice, his care, his concern, and his love for us, his love towards us. We, as we consider these truths, will proclaim the gospel message with a fervency that whether or not someone believes what we say to them, whether or not someone receives what we say to them, it will not matter to us because these truths will have gripped our hearts in such a way that we will not be able to help but speak about these things. And you say to me then, how do these truths become to transfer from my heart and to wag my tongue with these glorious messages that the gospel itself brings? How, how do these truths transfer from the heart to the tongue? Well, I'll tell you, it's very simple. It is what has led every single individual who is a faithful witness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim the word. The way that these truths transfer from our heart and, and, and move our tongue to speak is found in the fact of our love for the one who has brought us into this blessed condition. If we want to have these truths flow from our hearts and onto our lips, we must love our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has brought us into this blessed condition. And I say this from a fact that we see presented throughout all of the pages of Scripture, that it is our love for Christ which in turn causes us to proclaim His name. This is the record of the life of the Apostle Paul. He would even write about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, for we have concluded that this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, it was love for Christ which led Paul to proclaim the gospel message. The same thing will be true for us. It is our love for our Savior. It is our partnership with our Savior. It is our dwelling upon our Savior's love for us, which will in turn grow our love for Him in such a way that we will tell the whole world about the One who has brought us into the blessed condition that we have found ourselves to be in through the gospel of His name and His name alone. You see, as we take up the journey of Paul and his team today, we're going to see an example of Paul being constrained by the love of Christ to proclaim the message of the gospel. We see Paul constrained by the love of Christ as they enter into this town in Philippi. And as we see them constrained to share the gospel in verse 11 all the way to verse 15, what we're going to see are some wonderful truths that will apply to our hearts, which in turn will lead us to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus' name. And the first truth that is shown to us today as we consider this is our responsibility as it pertains to reaching the lost with the gospel message. You see, Paul knew his responsibility. All of us have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel message to the ends of the earth. To whomever it is that the Lord brings into our path, we are to share the gospel message to them. But going beyond that, we also have other responsibilities that, 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 that we must understand as a part of us simply knowing that we need to share the gospel truth. And so what we see here today in verse 11 to verse 14, and the first truth that is presented to us is the responsibility that we have in reaching the lost with the message of the gospel. Now, I'll read it just to remind ourselves of these things, but there are a few truths that we'll see as it pertains to our responsibility to reach these lost individuals. It says, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. 
And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from a city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now we'll stop there. You see, our responsibility in reaching the lost is seen in a few ways here. And in the first, we see it in the journey that Paul and his team went on from verse 11 to verse 12, that there is a journey that God is taking us on that we must go alongside Him with in order that we would be able to fulfill our responsibility to the lost individuals. We must not think that people are going to come to us, but rather we must see in our responsibility to the lost, we must come to them. And we see this here beginning in verse 11 and also going into verse 12 which really Luke gives us a detail of the travel log of him and his team as they went into Macedonia, where God called them to go to back in Acts chapter 16, verse 6 to 10. Back in Acts chapter 16, verse 6 through 10, we saw that Paul and his team had initially planned on going west as they were in Lystra and Iconium. In Lystra and Iconium, that was on the east side of the Asia Minor region that they were in, and they were going to try to go west where they would go down into the western route, which would take them into the city of Ephesus, a large city. But as we learned last week, God told them, you're not going to go there. He forbid them from going into the region of Asia Minor where the city of Ephesus was. And so they said, okay, we won't go there. Well, where are they going to go now? Well, they attempted to go north to Bithynia. And as they were planning on making their way up north into Bithynia, God said, well, you can't go there either. The Spirit of Jesus spoke to them and said, this is not going to happen. So where are they to go? They can't go west. They can't go north. And for them to go east would have them return back to Syrian Antioch, which is where they had already planted a church, so that would be a fruitless endeavor for them because the church there was already reaching the lost. To go south would have had them go down into Jerusalem, which is where the church at Jerusalem was, and so they're thinking, well, where is it that God would have for us to go? And so what they do is they trek along this little line in between the north, south, and east, and west, the directions in which God told them not to go, and they trek along this little line until they make it to the edge of the Aegean Sea, which was in the city of Troas. And as they were in the city of Troas, if you were with us last week, they had a vision from a man in Macedonia. And the vision from the man in Macedonia was to them to say that, help us, come over to Macedonia and help us, which is a way to say that we need to hear the gospel message. Because anytime someone is asking for help in the scriptures, it is almost uh, 100% of the time that they are seeking salvation. They are seeking salvation from sins. And so Paul and, and uh, Silas and also Timothy and also Luke, they say, well, God would have us to go into Macedonia. And so picking up in verse 11, they set sail from Troas. Troas was on one side of the Aegean Sea. Macedonia was on the other side of the Aegean Sea, and so they were traveling over there to get to the people in Macedonia. Now, Luke tells us here, as they were traveling, making that direct voyage, they stopped off in Samothrace. Now, to cross, to cross along the Aegean Sea was around 125 miles, and so uh, the, uh, the captains of the ship, or the boat, they didn't, want, they didn't want to sail at night, and so they would stop off in Samothrace, which was halfway between the Aegean Sea on the east to the Aegean Sea on the west. And so they stopped off in Samothrace here, as Luke tells us. And what's interesting to note is if they would have gotten off the ship or the boat during these days, they would have been met by the people of Samothrace who had an idol worship of the twin fertility gods Kabairi. And on top of this, there was idolatry that was steeped on this island as well, too, where there was a 5,577-foot-high mountain peak. And it was believed by the Greeks during that day that that was where Poseidon was. And Poseidon stood at the top of that mountain and he guarded the ancient city of Troy, which was steeped in Greek myth mythology. And so that's where Paul and his team were overnight as they were waiting to go over to Macedonia. 
Macedonia. Whether or not they went to Samothrace and evangelized while they were waiting overnight there for the ship to take off in the morning, we don't know. But if they did, they would have met with a number of idolatrous individuals to proclaim the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ too. Now going further in verse 11, it says, the following day, they made it to Neapolis. And Neapolis was a port city, which would have brought them to the western side of the Aegean Sea. So they've made it all the way to Macedonia at this point. But still, they would have had to make a 10-mile journey by, by foot all the way into uh, Philippi. And now as they would get to Philippi, there's a number of things that Luke tells us here about Philippi. Namely, it was a leading city of the district of Macedonia and also a Roman colony. A number of things he tells us about here in this. But suffice it to say, all that is important for us to know now, at least for verse 11 to 15, is that Philippi was a region in which was very, very, very wealthy. It was a wealthy area. They had uh, rich deposits of copper, gold, and also silver. And on top of that, their plains were very fertile. It was a very wealthy region here in the, uh, uh, the state of Macedonia. And so probably the reason why Lydia is here in uh, Macedonia and Philippi is because she was also very wealthy, and we'll learn about her in just a few moments, but she was very wealthy because she was a seller of purple goods, and anything purple during those days was considered royalty, and so it was very, very expensive to buy these purple goods that she was selling, and so that's probably why she was in the uh, city of Philippi or the colony of Philippi at this moment, but more on that a little bit later. You say to me, what, what, is it, what am I to get out of all of this here? What am I to get out of this travel log that Luke gives us here uh, from the travel journey of the Apostle Paul and his team from Troas as they now make it into Philippi? And it's very simple, that God is going to lead us on a journey as we go out and evangelize for His name. That God is not calling for us to remain put right where we are in our home or in our safe space, but rather God is calling us to go out into the world to be able to share the gospel message to them. We must do these things because really experience tells us we cannot expect the world to come to us. It's very unlikely that someone's going to come up to you and say, hey, can you share the gospel with me? It's just not the conversation that people have with one another nowadays. And as America and in the region that we are in continues to turn further and further away from God, we cannot expect for an individual to come up to us every day and say, hey, will you share the gospel message to me or with me? I want to know about Jesus. And so we must understand that in our responsibility to evangelism, God is often going to take us on a journey with Him to bring the gospel message to the ends of the earth. Now, this is an idea that is presented all the way at the beginning of Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord told His disciples that they would be His witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This statement itself implies the fact that they were to have to go out from where they were if they were to fulfill the great commission that the Lord had given to them. Namely, that they were going to have to journey with the gospel message if they were to be faithful to the Lord's words as He gave them to them prior to His ascension up to the Father to be seated and reigning here in, in, in the heavenly places as our great high priest. They would have to go out from Jerusalem if they were to make it into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, they could not, they could not uh, uh, just stay in Jerusalem and, and send a post from Facebook or Instagram or anything else like that because they didn't have that back then. They needed to go out from where they were. They needed to journey with the Lord in order that they would be able to reach the ends of the earth. Now, do not apply this to yourself to say that God is going to have you go into the ends of the earth. He may or He may not. The way that we must apply this to ourselves today here is as we go along the journey of life, 
as we go day by day, wherever the Lord takes us, whether it is in our work, the job that we have, God has given us this job that we would, in our work, exist to glorify Him in all that we do. And one opportunity to glorify Him in our work life is to share the gospel with our coworkers. Or say you go to the grocery store, or say you go to a fast food restaurant, or wherever it is that you find yourself going, what you must understand is you are on a journey with God. You are journeying with God in the race of faith. And as you journey with Him, you are to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, looking for opportunities to share. And and I think about our church here. I I love hearing the stories from each of you who have understood this truth that, that, that wherever you are, it is an opportunity for you to be faithful to your call from God to fulfill the Great Commission. As you tell me about stories of how you are on the bus or the train or Ubering or on access in the access bus, all of these situations, I've heard you tell me stories about how you make that an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. You've got them right next to you. You're going to be on a long travel with them wherever you're going, and so, well, why not just share the gospel with them? It's encouraging to hear these stories from each of you as you proclaim to me how you are sharing the gospel message. You understand that you are on a journey with the Lord, and the Lord is bringing you to those places to share the gospel message to these individuals. Now, As you do these things, your responsibility to the lost is first to journey with God, not waiting for someone to come to you, but rather seeing every opportunity of you going out into the world as an opportunity to evangelize to these individuals. Now, there's also another helpful thought that comes out of these verses here, and it's found to us in verse 13. First, we must understand that we are to journey with God in our responsibility to evangelize, but also in verse 13 it says, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we suppose there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. You see, in verse 13, what this teaches us in our responsibility to evangelize is we must look for places of common interests of ours in in order that we will be able to reach these individuals with the good news of the gospel as we find a common interest with them, which will in turn lead us to be able to springboard our common interest with them as a way to share the gospel with them at a later time or at a later moment of our conversation with them. We We must see this idea that we are to go into places where we have a common interest with the people that we are seeking to reach. It's true, we can share the gospel wherever we are. Wherever we are, we can see that as a place that we can share the gospel. But would it not also be helpful to us to be able to go into places where we have a common interest with someone in such a way that we will be able to relate to them on a basic level, which in turn will lead us to have an opportunity to share the gospel with them at a later time or at a later moment in our relationship with them. Now you say, well, what was Paul's common place to go to? What did Paul look for in order that he would be able to have a common interest with someone in such a way that he would be able to share the gospel with them at a later time? Well, for Paul, his point of contact was a place of prayer. It was a place of prayer, or in other cases, as we see in Acts, we see Paul often going first to the synagogues. This was what he always did. He kept with God's salvation historical plan, which was to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so as Paul went into a place to be able to proclaim the gospel message, he always made it his first priority to find where the synagogues were, or in this case, where the place of prayer was. He knew that in doing this, he was able to reach a people that he had a close contact with because he himself was a Jew. He himself was someone who was a part of the synagogue system. He himself was steeped in Judaism. He himself would be able to have a great common interest with these individuals in such a way that it would be able to in turn lead to him 
to be able to share the gospel message with them at a later time. Now, he did this. He did this going to the Jew first and then to the Gentile because of it being God's salvation historical plan, but also because it was very practical for him to do these things. As I mentioned, Paul was a Jew. Paul was also a Pharisee. He was a student of Gamaliel, one of the most excellent rabbis of his time. And on top of this, he has said in numerous letters that he was excelling far beyond his peers in Judaism, far beyond his peers in Judaism. Paul was a Jew to the uttermost. And where would Paul go first where he had a point of contact with someone? Well, he would go to the place that he was raised in. And as he would go to these places, he would be able to establish a relationship with them where in turn he would be able to gain their trust and gain a a, a relationship with them where he would be able to proclaim the gospel message to these individuals. Now, why didn't Paul go to a synagogue here? Why did he go to the riverside where they supposed there was a place of prayer? Well, it's probably because there was no synagogue here in Philippi. The, 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 law, the law said, this is the rabbinical law, it said that there was not to be a synagogue in any region unless there were ten Jewish men there in that region first. And so the reason that we have here the meeting at a place of prayer is because there was no synagogue in the city of Philippi at this time. There was not ten, yen, ten men, or a minion is what it's called, a minion of men which would be able to establish the, uh, the allotted number to be able to have a synagogue service in. And so, being that it was only women here who were worshipers of the God of Israel, they had a service outside and in the open air, and they were having a prayer service here. And so Paul goes to this place in order that he would be able to reach them with the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Luke says, they sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, before we look at what they spoke to them about, what I want us to consider is this. What I want us to consider is in our life, what are some areas in our life that we are passionate about that we can place ourselves into in order that we will be able to forge a relationship with an individual, gain their trust, and then in turn be able to share the gospel with them at a later time. I think about the fact that we live in a city that is very close to the ocean. Many people love the ocean. Many people love to go to the ocean. They like to be able to go to the ocean and and watch the waves crash, and they, they like to fish, or they do a number of different things at the ocean. If you find yourself to be a lover of the ocean, go to the Santa Monica Pier. Go to the edge of the pier and sit down next to someone and just enjoy watching the waves with this individual. Strike up a conversation with them. Gain an interest in what they are talking about. Talk to them about how how as you look out into the ocean, how, how far the ocean goes, about farther than the eye can even see. As you maybe look down into the ocean, as you look over the edge of the pier, and you look down and try to see fish, and you, you remark to them about how, how, can you imagine how many fish are in this ocean? Fish in which we have never seen? And then maybe take them to the beach and take them to where the waves only come so far, and then ask them this question, why do you think all of this exists? Why do you think the ocean goes far, so far that you can't even see how far it goes? Why do you think that there are all these creatures in the ocean that we do not even know about? And why do you think that the waves only come this far? And as they say to you, well, I, I don't really know. You in turn point them to the Scriptures. And you say, I can tell you why the ocean only comes this far. It is because the God who created all things has commanded it in such a way as to only come this far. And as you teach them about the God of the Scriptures, the Creator of the universe, you in turn can ask them, do you have a relationship with God? Do you know this God who I'm speaking to you of? And they say, well, I don't know. 
I don't know. Then you say, well, do you know Jesus Christ? He is the one mediator between God and men. And if you have a relationship with Him, you can have a relationship with the one who is the controller of the wind and the waves. In Job chapter 38, God says to Job, He says, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. You can say God is the one who stops these waves from going this far. He tells the waves to cease at this point. They break off, they come back into the ocean, and how the tide works, I don't know about all of that, but I know that God is in control of all of it. And in turn, you say, do you want to know God? Do you want to know God? And and you can apply this in a number of different areas. This is just one example, given that we're so close in proximity to the ocean, God's creation. We can go there and proclaim the good news of the gospel with these individuals who themselves also appreciate God's creation, only they do not yet know that it is his creation. Think about Paul for a moment here. Paul goes to these women who are praying, and now Paul immediately has an end with these individuals. He sees, them, he sees them praying. And so Paul goes to these women, and you can imagine the conversation begins, well, who are you praying to? You know, it's a very simple conversation to ask. It, start, it starts the conversation, and they would say, well, why the God of Israel? It's the God of Israel that we are praying to. And then Paul might say to them, well, how can you be so sure that God hears your prayers? How can you be so sure? You're just here. You're talking to the air, at least it seems. How can you be so sure that God is actually hearing your prayers? On top of this, they're not having a true synagogue service where a priest would have been, so where's their mediator, Paul would say to them. How can you be so sure that God is actually hearing your prayers? And they would say, well, I can't. They could not answer truthfully that they could be sure that God had heard their prayers because they did not have a mediator present. You see, then Paul could say to them, well, you know, you don't need an earthly mediator. You don't need a priest because in Jesus, you have a great high priest. He could immediately change the conversation from a prayer service to a proclamation of the gospel message from the simple fact to say to them that you have in Jesus Christ a mediator. And it is because of Jesus Christ as your mediator, if they would profess faith in him, that God will hear your prayers. Whether you're by the riverside having a prayer side service, whether you're in your home or in your car, whether you're wherever you are, wherever you find yourself to be in the uttermost parts of the sea, God will hear your prayers and answer them according to his perfect will because of Jesus, his mediator, the great high priest. And then the people will say, well, who's Jesus? I don't know who Jesus is. Tell me about him. And then again, you've got this conversation going. You've you've found that point of contact with them. And in turn, you can build that conversation with them to lead it into a proclamation of the gospel message. You see, that's what we're seeking to do. Our responsibility in proclaiming the gospel message or reaching the lost is to get ourselves to a point with that individual where we can tell them about Jesus Christ. We are not to get caught up in our conversations about our hobbies, although they can be a good conversation starter, that's not where the conversation is to lead or to end off into. It may lead by that conversation starter, but it must always get to the point that we are proclaiming the gospel message to them because that is our responsibility. God does not want us to know everything there is about sports or politics or the stock market or the latest movie. He wants us to know about Christ, and He wants us to know that our responsibility to Him and to others is to proclaim the message of Christ to whomever it is He places us in in the paths with. And you say, well, what do I share this person, to share to this person with? What if I don't know how to say the gospel? Well, open up to Acts chapter 10. 
Acts chapter 10, verse 34 to 43, where we have a recorded, recorded speech of Peter proclaiming the gospel message to Cornelius and his household. You say, I don't know where to start to share the gospel. Open up to Acts, and then as you read through Acts 34 to 43, explain to them what Peter is talking about here. I'll read it for you here now. It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the good word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the gospel. It's right here for us. It is the gospel. It tells us of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we pre present these truths to these individuals, we call on them to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance of their sins, God will hear their call and He will forgive them of their sins and immediately indwell them with His Spirit in order that they will have newness of life through the regenerating power of the Spirit of God. That is the message that we are to proclaim to these people. We must tell them about Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension up to the heavenly places where He is seated at the right hand of God, forever, forever able to save anyone who calls upon His name to be saved. And so then our responsibility in evangelism is this. Summarizing what has been said, we can say that we must seek people out to share the gospel with. It's simple. We must seek people out to share the gospel with. And if we do this, we have met the requirements that God has laid out for us in His Word to be faithful witnesses of the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you say there's something missing here. What about this person responding here? Am I not responsible for them to respond in saving faith to the gospel that I am proclaiming to them? Well, I tell you very clearly, you're not. You are not responsible for the person's conversion. That alone rests in God's responsibility. God must awaken the heart of that individual as you share the gospel message to them. You must not see yourself as the means in which this person is going to be able to be raised from spiritual deadness into spiritual life through the regenerating power of the Spirit of God. You see, you cannot convert anyone. Your responsibility is to seek people out to share the gospel with and then rely upon God who will awaken the heart of that individual to newness of life. You see, God has, 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 uh, has, has instructed us to be His witnesses. He uses us as a means to an end, but we are not the end in that. God is the one who must awaken the heart of the individual to the gospel message. And we see this very clearly in verse 14. In verse 14, we see God's responsibility in reaching the lost. Now, not only do we have a responsibility in reaching the lost, but God has a responsibility also. Now, it's the latter part of verse 14, so I'll just read it starting from there. It said, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
You see, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul did not open her heart. Timothy did not open her heart. Luke didn't. Neither did Silas. It was the Lord who, awoken her, who awakened her heart to the message of the gospel. And we must always remember this as we share the gospel. We must always remember that it is not our convincing words. It is not our tactic. It is not our approach. It is not because we're well-liked by that individual that they will respond to the message, but rather God must awaken the heart of that individual. I was encouraged this week as I read these words from another pastor. He said, remembering God's sovereignty and salvation is the foundation of a proper perspective on evangelism. Remembering that God is sovereign in salvation will take away all of the overwhelmingness that comes from our own responsibility to reach the lost. The overwhelming thoughts we have, well, what if the person doesn't understand what I'm saying to them? I've shared it clearly with them, but what if they don't understand? What if I could have been clearer? Or or what if they don't like me? Or, Or what if they don't respond? All of that goes away knowing that God is sovereign over the salvation of this individual. You see, our work can only go so far since it is by the power of God that the man or woman who responds to the gospel message is able to do just that. Now, one passage which dedicates, which shows this so clearly is Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, Paul talks about our state before Christ, how God drew us to him, and the newness of life we are now walking in because of him. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us with, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, it lays it out very clearly. The unbeliever is dead. They are dead in their sins. We, as individuals, even though we have been brought to newness of life, do not have the power to resurrect an individual who is spiritually dead. That alone rests in the power of God. God must be the one who, in His grace, awakens the heart of the individual that we are proclaiming to the gospel. He must awaken their heart to understand the truth that we are presenting to them. You see, it's not our clever approach, nor is it the amount of time that we spend sharing with them. There is nothing, nothing that we can do to awaken them out of their spiritual deadness. God must awaken the heart of the unbeliever, and that is what He did here in the case of Lydia, as Luke tells us. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, we must understand that Paul knew this as well, this truth. Paul understood that he himself could not save anyone, that it was not his powerful speech, it was not his personality, although he had powerful speech, and he was also had a great personality. He was, very, he was able to draw a number of disciples to himself in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was a very, very important individual, and even in all of this, he knew. He knew he could not draw anyone, and he made this clear. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, as Pastor Richard's been preaching through 1 Corinthians, you'll know this. Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You see, Paul knew he could proclaim the gospel message to these individuals. He could plant the seed. He could even water the seed, but it is only God who gives the growth. 
and all the individuals that God has assigned to our lot as we go out and share the gospel message with these individuals by, all of the individuals that God has called for us to, to be his instrument in which we take the gospel message to them where in turn they will respond in faith by, all the people God has, 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 has given to us for that, they will be saved as we proclaim the gospel message to them. Not any less, not any more. Every single individual who God said Paul would be able to reach with the gospel message and God himself would enliven them to new life in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, Paul was able to reach them, not because of his smart speech, not because of his knowledge of the Word of God, but rather because God had assigned to him those who he would be able to proclaim the gospel message to, and God give the growth thereby. Paul says, no, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You see, we must remember that our sovereign God is the one who is doing the inviting and drawing of people to himself. Again, it's not our wise speech. It's not our tactics. It's not our approach. It's not, you know, we give them $100 and say, hey, if I give you this, will you respond to the gospel message? None of that, none of that can bring someone to newness of life. It is only by the Spirit of God. God that they are able to be brought into the newness of life through his name and his name alone. This is the truth that is all throughout Scripture. It is all throughout Scripture. Never, never lose sight of the fact in your evangelism that God is the one who will awaken the dead hearts to newness of life. Acts 2.47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts chapter 13, verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. John 6, verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by, or it's granted him by the Father. You see, we must never forget this. God is sovereign in salvation. God is the one who will awaken the hearts of the individuals that we are seeking to share the gospel message to. Our responsibility is to seek them out and proclaim the gospel message. God's responsibility is to awaken them to newness of life. And all of those whom God has called will be awakened to life as we proclaim the gospel message to them. You say, this is, this is so simple. It's so simple, and it is. It's very simple. When it comes to reaching the lost, we do not need to overcomplicate things. We have our responsibility. God has his responsibility. And even more than that, the individual who we are sharing the gospel message to has a responsibility as well. And we see this most wonderfully displayed here in the life of Lydia. We see the responsibility of the lost when it comes to us proclaiming the gospel message to them and God drawing them to himself. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, there are a number of things that Lydia teaches us here. Two responsibilities that I want us to consider first is that the responsibility of the lost as we proclaim the gospel to them is that they would listen and respond. The lost are to listen and respond as we share the gospel message to them. Now, they don't know that, so certainly we could say, you know, listen up to what I'm having to say to you, and then we call for them to respond to the message that we have given to them, certainly not without, notwithstanding the fact that God must awaken them in order that they can actually respond in faith. But nevertheless, the unbeliever must know that they are to be listening and responding to the message that we give to these individuals. Now, looking at Lydia's story, I just want to give you a little backstory on who she was, because Luke himself gives us a backstory on her here. Lydia was a very wealthy woman who was from the city of Thyatira. 
And during those days, Thyatira had a booming, a booming purple dye industry. And it was during those days also that purple dye included in clothing was a symbol of royalty. And so royal individuals, those who were kings and queens and whatever else, Caesar and and, uh, those who were leading in the colonies, the praetors and, and the councils and all of those individuals, they needed to have the purple dye in their clothings to signify who it was they were. And so the city or the town in which uh, Lydia came from actually had a market in the booming dye industry during those days. It was the purple dye especially. And where they would get this purple dye from, which goes to show it's not an easy process, the first way they would do it is they would uh, fish out uh, these, um, uh, these little scallops or, or uh, shellfish, rather, shellfish, while they would take them out and they would excrete this little dye uh, from themselves and they would uh, take this dye and they would dye clothes with it. On top of this, there was also something called the matter root. It's uh, the root they would take out, and as they would blend up the root and grind up the root, they would be able to extract this purple dye from it. And so Lydia knew how to do this. She was one of very few who did, coming from the city of Thyatira. And so she herself was able to be profitable because of the fact that it was only those who were wealthy could afford the process of extracting this purple dye. They had to go either from the shellfish or the matter root, both of which would have taken a very, very long time. And so she would sell this uh, purple dye or these purple goods. She probably would dye clothing as well to the individuals at Rome or those within the Roman colonies, which is where Philippi was. It was a Roman colony. They would wear it on their togas, and they would wear it in everything because they wanted to be seen as royal. Just like in our day, you have Louis Vuitton and Prada and Hermes or however you say it. You have those expensive clothing or those expensive things. It's a status symbol. And so Lydia marketed or profited off of those individuals wanting to have the status symbol of their day. And so that's what she did. But on top of that, Luke tells us that this woman, Lydia, was also a worshiper of God. Much like Cornelius, she was a Gentile believer in the God of Israel. She had forsaken the old way. She had forsaken the, uh, the idea of idolatry that would have been prominent in the place that she had come from. And she was following the one true God of Israel. But you see, there was something that she needed to know. That the one true God of Israel had sent His Son, Jesus Christ, in order that all who would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be saved. She needed to know that mere worship of the one true God was not enough because her worship was not received by God because it was still tainted by her sinfulness. It was tainted by the fact that she was a dead woman in her spiritual walk with with, with God. She needed to be born again. She needed to be regenerated. And so Paul, knowing that she was a worshiper of God, knowing that she knew the one true God of Israel, in turn told her about the fact that the one true God of Israel had sent His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he told her about the Lord Jesus Christ, as he told her that Jesus had paid it all, that Jesus was the one who died on the cross for the atonement of her sins, she no longer needed the sacrifices. She no longer needed to do all of the rituals. Mere belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of her sins and trusting in him for his righteousness would bring her into an everlasting relationship with God. And as Luke tells us here, she did. She paid attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized and her household as well. You see, the responsibility of the unbeliever as we proclaim the gospel message to them is simple. Listen and respond. Listen to what we are saying and respond to the gospel message. 
This is important for us to know these things. If we know that the people that we are seeking to share the gospel with need to listen to us and they need to respond to us, this in turn takes out some of the overwhelmingness that comes with evangelism. If a person's not listening to us, they don't want to hear what we're saying to them, that's fine. We'll go to the next person. We don't need to waste our time on someone who is not listening to us because we know that God is not drawing that individual with the gospel at that point. We don't need to waste our time with individuals in that way. And you say, well, that might be a little bit harsh. Well, no, it's the truth. They do not want to hear, and so therefore we must go to those who are willing to listen and those who are willing to respond to the gospel message. You see, the gospel demands a response, and when we confront people with the gospel, we confront them with matters of eternal importance, and so we must, we must tell them that if they do not respond in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, they stand condemned in their sins, and they, if they were to die in their sins, they would be judged to an eternity in hell away from the presence of God forever under his wrath. This is the lot for every single unbeliever. We must, we must see them respond to the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. For them to reject it is to be condemned, but to receive it by faith is to be born again, regenerated to new life through the power of the Spirit of God. Now, this is the unbeliever's responsibility, but also we see a couple examples here from Lydia that are just too good to pass over here. After she was saved, we read that and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and uh, fellowship with me and stay. And she prevailed upon us. There are two things that Lydia did after she was saved, two things in which all of us could learn from here. These two things are this. First, she was baptized. First, she was baptized, and baptism did not save her. She already was saved. Why was she baptized then? Well, baptism is the outward profession of our inward faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we are speaking to an unbeliever, if they respond favorably to the gospel message, namely respond in faith and repentance to the Lord, we encourage them to be baptized, as I'm sure Paul did. Paul, they were by the riverside. Paul said, okay, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take this step of faith. Be baptized in order that you can proclaim to all who are present that you have died to sin. Namely, you have died in Christ and you are coming up out of the waters of judgment, which is what baptism portrays. You go under the water of judgment and come up out of the waters of judgment into newness of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, do this. Be baptized. And so she was. Now, this is something that all of us could be encouraged by today here as well. If you are a new believer in the Lord and you have not yet been baptized, what are you waiting for? Why would you wait to profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Certainly, baptism does not save you. It cannot save. It is a work. But it is something that we do as believers in order to profess to the entire world that we have died to sin and we now live to the Lord Jesus Christ. On top of this, if you have been a believer in the Lord and you have not yet been baptized, I encourage you, take that step of faith and be baptized in order that you could be a witness to the world of the newness of life that Christ Jesus has brought you into by your faith in His name follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Lydia teaches us that as a believer, she portrays in her baptism the beautiful picture of the fact that she is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you've yet to be baptized here, be baptized. I encourage you to do that. I was a believer for many years before I was baptized because I was scared about going in front of individuals. I waited 13 years 
13 years upon my profession of faith until I was finally baptized. But it is a wonderful moment for us to come together as brothers and sisters in the Lord to rejoice, to rejoice in the salvation that you have in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, secondly, what she did is another wonderful truth, something that we all can take to heart here as we look through this uh, wonderful, wonderful work of evangelism that Paul and, uh, Paul and his team were doing. And it reminds me of something that we read back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. What she does here is she takes up the Christian virtue of hospitality. In verse 15, she says, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Come to my house and stay if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. She takes up the virtue of hospitality. Now, thinking about what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10 here, this is so wonderful. It's so good to see immediately she evidences her salvation through the good works which God produced beforehand that she should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, immediately upon Lydia's salvation in the Lord, she immediately was hospitable to these individuals. She was hospitable to Paul and to Silas and to Timothy and to Luke. She said, would you come to my house and stay. She evidenced her salvation with good works. She invited them to stay with her and her household. And this would not have been an easy task for her to do. This would not have been easy. you got four men, missionaries, who have been on a long journey. They probably stink. They probably have not showered for a long while because they just got into Philippi. They walked 10 miles from, uh, from Neapolis. Before that, they were on a ship with people who knows how bad they stunk. And she says, would you come to my house and stay? She took up the virtue of hospitality, being led by the Spirit of God, inviting them to come and stay with them. And they, they, they immediately did, although it took maybe a little bit of a prevailing of, of, of Lydia to get them to do that. Luke's saying, she prevailed upon us. Probably Paul says, now oh, you don't want to take us in. We stink. There's four of us. You've already got your whole household to take care of. You don't want us to come with you. And she, she would not take no for an answer. She brought them into her home, and she learned what it meant to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ by taking up the virtue of hospitality. Now, what she does here also is very important, too, that we can take note of, is not only did she invite them into her home, but without knowing it, she allowed for her home to be the first meeting place of the church of the believers in the city of Philippi. That small act that she took up there, that small act as a new believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, led, that led her house to become the first meeting place for the church of Philippi to gather at. And this is really how the account uh, uh, stays for us here. We, we end off in verse 15 without much more to consider. And, and so we could end off here, but what I want us to do is to go back to something that I said at the beginning of our time together, this idea that evangelism can be quite overwhelming. It is true. It can. Evangelism can be quite overwhelming, but think about how rewarding it is also. Think about how rewarding evangelism is. Don't think about its overwhelmingness. Think about how rewarding it is. Think about this story that we have just looked at. Think about the fact that, that Paul and his team were able in evangelism to trust God for all that they were doing and to see him work in wonderful ways through the process of it all. Think about the fact that not only was Lydia saved, but also her whole household was saved because Paul and his team took up the call to evangelize. That's rewarding. 
To see an individual who was once spiritually dead be brought to newness of life in the Lord Jesus Christ, it does not get more rewarding than that than seeing an individual who once was lost now be found. On top of this, a church was planted here on this day in Philippi as Christ built his church using his witnesses as his instruments. A church was planted here. We don't know if one small act of evangelism that we participate in could lead to the planting of a church, whether here in Hollywood or wherever it is. Believers here in 1903, they planted a church here. They took that step of faith. They wanted to be a place in which people could come and know the goodness of God, know the grace of God, and they planted a church here. And here we are now today, some 115 years after that. You see, evangelism, the, the idea of responding in faith to what God has called for us to do can be the most rewarding thing that we ever take up. On top of this, their evangelism here, this one small act of evangelism here, led to the spread of the gospel all throughout Europe. This is the first recorded instance we have of the gospel being in Europe. The first time, the first person who ever responded to the gospel message is right here in Acts chapter 16, verse 11 to verse 15. And think about what has happened since then. The gospel is spread from Europe. It has come over here now into America. And as Americans have become saved and they have gone back into the regions of the other most parts of the earth, more people are being saved. We must never, ever think of evangelism as overwhelming, even though it can be at times. Rather, we must think of evangelism as rewarding. See it as rewarding. Thinking of evangelism as the most important task that you get to do as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not wishful thinking. This is the truth. I want to leave off with the words of an old Scottish Baptist minister, which encouraged me this week as, uh, uh, as I was uh, reading through the commentaries this week. This man, his name's Alexander McLaren. He was around during the 1800s, and he just spoke these beautiful words about what evangelism is all about. He says, evangelism is a work done for God, a work done for human souls, a work that is done with consequences which time will not exhaust nor eternity put an end to. This is the work of evangelism. And if we, in however humble and obscure way, respond to the invitation to be Christ's witnesses, we will find, like Paul did by the riverside that day, we are building better than we know and planting a little seed, the springing up whereof God will bless. Paul planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Church, I can testify to the fact that evangelism, although it is overwhelming, it is also quite rewarding. Every week we go out and evangelize on Wednesday as a church, and it is one of the most wonderful days of the week. I look forward to it every single week, knowing knowing of, of what God can do during evangelism. And while I'm not suggesting that you must come with us to evangelize, what I am suggesting is that you take up the faith. Take up the faith as a witness in the Lord Jesus Christ and evangelize, knowing that, knowing that evangelism is the most important work that you could ever do to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you have brought us into to be able to open your word and consider the glorious truths that are before us now concerning evangelism, God. God, that we who once were lost are now found, and not only have you found us and brought us into newness of life through the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also have given us this great privilege to be able to be your witnesses, your ambassadors, those who speak for you, those who speak your, your word of life. Lord, we thank you for this privilege today, and may we take up the privilege in, in, in humility, recognizing that, 
that as we go to these individuals, that we know that it is by your power that these individuals will be saved. That it's not by our work, but rather by your power. But even in that, Lord, may we always, always cherish, cherish this wonderful work that you have given us to do as we wait till you call us home to be with yourself for all of eternity. God, I thank you for each individual who is here today, and I, I pray that this message will impact them to your glory by the power of your Spirit. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.